there is no wealth but life. The more we understand that we are cradled in that, the more it will touch us. Whereas the more we believe that we control it, or that we have a right to control it, the more our mind will shut. Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Moskowitz. We have a great episode today with Jennifer Lorual, an American expat living in the UK, who is inspired into a new career in holistic garden design and permaculture by her disabled daughter, who has always been totally in tune with the natural world. Before I tell you about our interview, I want to explain to the regular listeners about the last couple months that I haven't produced any episodes. First of all, I needed the time to look at what has been working and what hasn't. As I said before, I wanted to try shorter and more regular episodes, and the feedback on that hasn't been as positive as I had hoped. So I'm scrapping that plan and doing more of what I had been doing before, finding awesome and interesting people who have hands-on experience with soil, natural gardening, landscaping, fungi, and much more. Since soil is so fundamental, and I believe it can solve many of our ecological problems, I hope to feature more and more soil-specific interviews, first and foremost. Also, I want to tell you about how, over the last couple months, I have been planning Get In My Garden products, both educational and the physical products to assist with soil building. This will take more time, but that is what I've been working on. You can still sign up for the email list at getinmygarden.com to stay in touch, follow what's up, and suggest interview subjects. Also, find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at getinmygarden. And today, Jennifer Lorual will tell us about the ecologically-minded area of Lancaster, England, where she lives, and some of the community and research programs they have around sustainability and food security. She talks about how she markets herself as an edible landscape designer, helping to restore spaces with native plants using permaculture concepts, and getting people interested in healthier garden spaces. She goes into how she is able to get suburbanites to come around to the idea of native plants in their yards, and ways she incorporates these plants to make a statement in the landscape as well as some of the terminology she prefers to use when communicating with people unfamiliar with permaculture principles. Jennifer shares some great book recommendations and mentions very interesting landscape designers who have inspired her or paved the way to where we are now in the movement. Listen to the whole episode because Jennifer gives some great recommendations sprinkled throughout the interview. In the last section, we talk about animal life, keystone species of plants and animals, and understanding each piece of the ecosystem by observation to uncover what nature is telling us in our specific ecosystem. Jennifer discusses going beyond permaculture with an indigenous approach to communication with plants and fungi, which places humans directly into the natural environment with so much reverence and connection. You can reach out to Jennifer after the interview. Her contact info is available at the end. Well, it's very nice to connect with you. Really looking forward to hearing about what you're working on. Do you want to tell people how you ended up there, first of all, and a little bit of your all backstory? Right. Okay, well, I am speaking from Lancaster in uh, the United Kingdom in Northwest England, which is different from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I, it's a very long story, and I won't tell all of it. But basically, when I, was, I grew up in Los Angeles, and when I was 15, my parents thought it was a good idea to send me to Europe for the summer to get some culture. And... I discovered various things, but one of the things I discovered was the difference between ancient culture that you can see in Europe 
uh, like really, really old, old buildings and evidence of prehistoric culture and that kind of thing versus the kind of popular culture that was the uh, absolutely everything I knew in Los Angeles uh, back then. Uh, I realize there's now fortunately much more of an awareness of indigenous culture in the United States now. And that's that it's a long time coming. However, at that time, that was totally blanked over. And so it was just Mickey Mouse. Uh, after I finished high school, I decided that I could, was really good at languages and I wanted to come live in Europe. I'm, I'm, I'm shortening this a lot. Um, so after many backs and forths and this and that, I ended up living in France uh, with my French husband. And uh, we have three children who were born there. Now, the thing was, is that my daughter, um, who is now in her late 30s, um, was born with disabilities. And basically, we came to Britain because um, we couldn't find any help for her in, in France at that time. That, that's a whole other conversation. I see. And ultimately, she led me into garden design because she is one of these people who is completely 100% in tune with nature. And we, we were living in a house, not in Lancaster, but in another part of England. And in the garden, she used to really, really come alive listening to the birds and just being in nature. And so that's how I got involved with designing gardens. Uh, and the first garden I ever designed was for her school. Um, and then it went on from there. How I ended up in, in Lancaster is another story. <laughs> uh, okay. with, you know, my personal life and changing and some various things. Lancaster, where I live now, it's a very ecological, it's a bit like Santa Fe, actually. Uh, a lot of eco people living here. We have a lot of Green Party city councillors and a county councillor. And there's a lot of community-based um, things going on regarding seed swapping and food security and community gardens and school gardens and all those wonderful things, which I think are probably happening in Santa Fe, too. From what Definitely, I yeah. I think it's yeah, happening and, more and, and more uh, everywhere. That's but right. Well, that's true. The center and, of it as well. um, and also Lancaster um, has uh, two universities and one of the universities has an environment center, which is very much focusing now on the questions of food security and climate change and uh, what can we do and so on. So um, that, that's how I ended up in Lancaster. I've been here now for 15 years and um, it's, it's really wonderful here. That sounds wonderful. Well, so in your working with people in suburban gardens to create edible gardens as well as just more holistic uh, setups, is that right? That's right. Well, I mean, I use permaculture design methodology, but I don't usually tell people I'm doing permaculture because then they think it's a particular thing, which it isn't. Actually, what is more is I, I design ornamental gardens, which are edible. Um, so my approach is ornamental so that people think they're getting something pretty. Uh, and then, and then I bring in the, the rec, the, the regeneration of habitats and the foraging and, uh, and the food forest idea and, and all those kinds of things. But I, I, I basically market myself as a garden designer who does edible ornamental. How yeah. has it been received? Do a lot of people instantly understand it and want that for their garden? It's it's funny. I would say it's a spectrum, of course. I mean, I had a guy ring me up this morning and he was trying to sell me artificial grass. 
Um, <laughs> and we, we ended up having this amazing conversation. And I basically said, no, I don't think so. Um, not only that, but tell your boss to pivot right now because he's in the wrong industry. Um, so, you know, there are people like that who, who just don't get it that the biosphere is in such a, an emergency situation. I'm, I'm afraid most people don't get it. Um, but there are some people who do. And there are some people simply who like things that are beautiful and pretty. And that's that's the way in mostly, as I say, well, these plants over here are beautiful. And don't you really want to have butterflies too? And mm -hmm. and don't you really want to have the birds coming and singing and all those kinds of things? So I, I try to sell it on what I would call the greetings card. Uh, and, you know, the kind of greetings card you would buy for your grandmother, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way I kind of sell what I do. And then I, I try to get people really excited about having um, herbs to grow that they can that they can make tea out of or for their spaghetti sauce. And, and if you look on my LinkedIn profile, you'll see I've been doing this whole series called Edible Alphabet. And, awesome. Uh, yeah, so so that's that's been garnering quite a bit of interesting response. So I try to I try to design gardens for people where absolutely everything can be eaten or is is like a, a medicine. But I that's put so things, great. Yeah, I put the things together so they look pretty, basically. And so as far as that goes, how much of what you're using is native? Because I know that that's like a separate subject altogether, and that it affects is. the ecosystem a lot. Yeah, yeah, that that's that is a really crucial question. The more I read people like Benjamin Folk that I told you about, um, yes. we talked earlier, um, and other um, other people, there are various like um, uh, braiding sweetgrass by oh yeah, Robin um, well Kimmerer. I mean, I think everybody should read that book. But that's that's the kind of book that really influences me to go more and more towards native. However. In suburbia, it's really difficult to get people to appreciate native plants um, because they think they're weeds, basically. Right. So, so I'm very, very much inspired, and I do say this from time to time if people ask me. And there was a very famous Brazilian landscape architect called Roberto Burley Marx, M-A-R-X. And he, he lived uh, during most of the 20th century. And what he did was really exciting, which was that he used native plants, but he bunched them together um, in, in design as if they were exotics. So he would like put whole masses of natives together so that it made the kind of impact that people were expecting from a landscaped garden. That's a really cool and, point. Yeah, it's it, it, this when I when I was studying garden design, um, I was given him to to report on, and he was he's been such an inspiration to me. And so that's what I try to do. I try to uh, do masses of natives together to to enhance the uh, what they call in the in garden design they call the readability of the landscape, so that people can read it as a design garden rather than interpret it as a mess. Right, a weed patch or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for, for one thing, I mean, uh, the words we use are really important. So um, about a year ago, I decided I'm never going to say the word weed again. So I, I'm now, I always say wild wild plants or wildflowers. I like and, that. And that already changes. Now, clearly, not everybody wants to have wild plants everywhere. But if, if they are put together in a way that's beautiful, ten, people tend to accept them more than if, if they're just random 
Another thing I tried to do is to sell people on the idea of a mini meadow. And in the United States, you could call that a mini prairie. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if they've got a lawn, I don't expect them just to let the whole lawn go to a prairie. But what I do suggest to them is that they plot out areas uh, kind of with interesting shapes, like, say, you know, kidney shape or swimming pool shape or something like that. And that they mow around it, but that they really concentrate so that they, they so they've got a focus on something that's been designed and they feel safe that way. That sounds great. That reminds me of the pollinator gardens that some people are doing. Exactly. That might be something that you set aside just for pollinator plants. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and also the new prairie design school is all about that. Pete Aldoff. Oh, excellent. You know about Pete Aldoff. Who, he designed I don't know his name, but I've heard of that. Oh, my goodness. Well, he, you know the New York High Line? Um, yes. Yeah, right. Well, he's the, he's, the, he's the garden designer who designed oh, okay. with, with another garden designer called Noel Kingsbury. Um, those guys designed that, and they used mostly perennials, prairie perennials. And that was interesting That's awesome. because they had to choose ones that could stand up to the New York winter. And Right. And, well, that and, was mentioned in the Douglas Tallamy book that I uh read recently and then i interviewed him about they were very successful in new york it was amazing what they accomplished absolutely absolutely it's interesting because i recently um gave two webinars for a group in san antonio and that was absolutely amazing because they wanted me to they wanted me to tell them how i could do something natural in their gardens uh, in san antonio and what do i know about san antonio you know <laughs> nothing um, but it was a real challenge to me to go back to the permaculture principles of following the patterns of nature. And so I did some research uh, to find out what the, what the uh, soil was like and what the bedrock was like and what the different ecosystems were. And I discovered that, these, that four different ecosystems actually converge on that city. And so basically wow. I was able to share with them, I was able to find some kinds of plants and say, look, these are some examples. If you follow what, what nature is trying to already do in your, in your area, and you do it, but you do it aesthetically. That is to say, you know, you put the pretty things together. So you put the yellow ones there and the orange ones next to them or whatever. Then um, even without knowing the plants myself, I knew that, 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 for example, the Texas Native Plant Society would be able to tell these people which plants were the ones that, that what I could help them with was the idea of how to plan a garden which is fit for its place and, and for, the, um, for the creatures, you know, for the wildlife that is Yes. Good. Um, and if I can just say another thing, too, is obviously wildlife aren't just little things. I mean, there's big things that are wildlife, too. Things like coyotes and, I mean, you know, they're gophers. I mean, there are always animals that humans like to hate. And I think a lot about designing with nature is to, uh, to find a way of accommodating more of those animals. Because they, I you know, could not agree more. more. Pardon? I totally agree. And here in New Mexico, I mean, it's very wild as it is. So they're just, there are so many animals. It would be crazy to try to exclude them. Well, yeah. And then there's the whole idea of keystone species as we've been learning about beavers, for instance, or wolves in Yellowstone. Um, in, in the UK at the moment, beavers are a really big thing because uh, particularly reintroducing beavers in Scotland uh, because it helps. I mean, they create the water, the down, you know, the downstream water systems that, that mm-hmm. uh, prevent flooding and help biodiversity, you know, all of those things. Totally. 
And what about as far as your landscaping, what decisions do you make about trees? Because I know there's the same principle for trees. There could be keystone trees in different ecosystems that support the majority of the insect life. That's right. It's interesting because somebody, I have an email right now in my inbox. Somebody just asked me that question and they're saying, oh, I want to, I want an Indian um, catalpa tree. And I'm going to write back to this person and say, look, those are beautiful trees. Go to India, but, but, but not for the Northwest of the UK. Wow. We need to plant the trees with the greatest number of associated species. And obviously, if you're in a suburban garden, there there will be some species that will be too big for your suburban garden. This is true. Mm -hmm. But there are still other species that are small enough to go into a suburban garden. And those are the ones we should be planting. And it's our choice to learn to love them. You know, it's really simple. Absolutely. Well, I definitely think just even if people aren't, aware of the specifics most people are aware that we need to move away from some of the paradigms that we've had over the last several decades or century in gardening Mm. and i know younger people who are now maybe new homeowners they are learning about how to have natural gardens and avoid the chemicals and the products that are commonplace Mm. yeah so I, I like the idea of calling it an edible garden because then people really know that you don't want to spray anything there. Yeah. And they have to absolutely. think twice. But another thing is then um, it encourages people to learn about wild food and foraging. Um, is that what you see in the United States? Would you call it foraging or gleaning or? For, uh, foraging if it comes from someplace beyond your yard, probably. All right. Well, it is possible to um, cultivate wild plants in your yard so you can forage sustainably um, Love that. and and another thing is uh, to go out into what is still wild near where you are and observe what, what actually lives there and how how does it live there and how can you bring those patterns again being permaculture observing how can you bring those patterns back into into your yard which is going to look different in, in New Mexico from what it looks right. like in Britain, obviously. But the principle is the same. I mean, here we have a woodland edge with multi, multi-layered multi woodland edge, and it's really a moist, wet climate here. <laughs> you yeah. wouldn't believe it, but it really is, you know. Um, so, so that's what we do. But you guys, you have a desert archetype. We're know? high and, desert, yeah. Yeah. So what grows there? You've got the chaparral, you've got the, you've got the wonderful cacti and, and, you know, wonderful. And then we are up against the forest. So it's, there's always a possibility of, well, larger trees can grow here. Uh, Aspens don't really grow at this altitude, but people plant them. It seems to be a big mistake. Um, Uh I'm really interested in how people can bring fungus into their yards. Oh yeah. You know, and that can be a component of permaculture. Absolutely. Is that something that you ever plan? I try to talk to the fungi. I have a I have a rather increasingly indigenous approach, <laughs> which is basically <laughs> I'm living on on this planet within the arms of Mother Earth and 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 nature, whatever, whatever you want to call it, Mother Nature. And so we're all sisters and brothers. And um, so I just try to greet greet the species. Basically, that's that's my increasingly my approach. I don't usually say that to my clients, <laughs> they would think I was totally doolally. But, but um, 
So going back to fungi, um, yeah, one of the one of the things that um, is suggested in certainly in British permaculture, it might not be the same in New Mexico, which is to allow natural leaf debris to accumulate, to allow wood to rot, and those kinds mm-hmm. of things, which which obviously then enables the the fungi and the mycorrhizae to um, explore. Do, I think here grow? we might require more hands-on. Uh, activities like maybe having to add the wood chips and things like that just because of the dryness and lack Mm -hmm. of foliage. Right. Are there fungi that are native to your area? Yes, actually, maybe not at the 7,000 foot altitude, but up the mountain at 10 and 11,000 feet, the Percini mushroom. Percini? Oh, wow. People come from everywhere in the world here just to come for it. And forage. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Porcini. Oh. That's what in yeah. France they call it. Le Cep. Le Cep. Uh, right. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, can I tell you a story about that? There, there was some Police. growing um, on a log not too uh, well. It was a stump that was cut off a couple of streets away from where I live. And a very, very dear friend of mine, um, who I'll mention, because he, he's the head of permaculture in Ukraine. His name is Pavlo Ardanov. And he's an amazing guy. Anyway, um, he was visiting, and we and we both spotted this. And so he knew he knew the Ukrainian word for it, and I knew the French word for it. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, and and in and in England they call it a penny bun. Oh, and penny bun. Yeah, but anyway, I didn't know that. Yeah, but anyway, going back. So going back to growing fungi. I mean, I. I I think that it's really important to learn about the the nature of your place and not necessarily to introduce too much. Certainly, if you wanted to, to come together as an ecosystem. You said to understand your place. And were you saying not add anything like wood chips? Is that what you meant? Well, I mean, I mean, you can't. The difference between a garden and the wild is that the humans do something. So... You know, we are always going to be adding stuff. This is true. But I think it's worth thinking carefully about what we do add mm-hmm. um, and what we introduce because there have been a lot of mistakes, really. So that, that's really what I meant to say. And if you, have a, if you have a high desert, I think if I were living in Santa Fe, my first thing would be to seek indigenous wisdom about which plants are edible and medicinal and then i would try to form a relationship with those plants specifically by growing them and by observing them in the wild and and so on and i think that's i would try to learn from the native wisdom really is what i think i would try to do first because those peoples obviously survived on the land and in a very deep relationship with absolutely yeah yeah and it's amazing here because we do have a huge garden culture and uh, agriculture, and the environment is inhospitable. It's it's amazing how different it is from. I grew up in Seattle, very oh, wow. similar to the UK. I mean, you can grow anything. It seems like. Yeah, yeah, similar climate. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I didn't mean to take your attention away from that story about Paul Stamets. Oh no! I just—it's just that I'm one of his thousand true fans, or one of his hundred thousand true <laughs> friends. I mean, by now I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of true fans. So he's got. am I. He's amazing. He is absolutely amazing, and I am forever recommending his book and his website and stuff to people. Yeah, Mycelium Running is the book that I read. Yeah. I'm not sure what new books he's got, but he's definitely got to be the most 
out there mycologist. I mean, he's his he's um, spreading the knowledge more than anyone, I think. I think so too, and also developing um, developing new applications for uh, fungal remediation using fungi for remediation and helping and bees of- with different you know antiviral uh, yeah. things. It's amazing. And, and I can't he, wait to see what happens. Uh, what was the last thing? Anti anti cancer as well. Oh, okay. I see. He writes about he writes about that too. But I think the thing that comes across the most in all of his writing is his reverence for the world of fungi. And his, I think he was one of the first writers that awakened to me to this possibility of having what I would call an, an indigenous approach to um, working with, with the plant kingdom. He, and, and not this kind of what you would think of as a, a, a Western colonialist dominating I guess you uh, have a good perspective from being in the UK, because my opinion is that, I mean, a lot of what we know about the wilderness comes from that British colonialism, and I don't see that as necessarily 100% negative or positive, but they're masters at understanding the plant kingdom and, you know, the insects and categorizing things and observing Mm -hmm. things, but now Mm. we're moving to something more connected, hopefully. I I hope so, yeah. Because you can observe and categorize, but you're still remaining outside of. And I think exactly. you're, you're absolutely right that, that that scientific observation and categorization is really helpful in getting a hold on plant families, for instance, and their interrelationships and the functioning and all of those things. But I do think that if we stay outside it, if we still think that we are separate from it, then that that's really um, the danger today. I'm on a journey to, to be more connected. And I, even in spite of all of what I've been doing with the podcast and online, I'm still separate in many ways and I want to be more connected. So how can people move in that direction, take some big steps? Mm. I mean, obviously we know that planting, you know, taking more care in our gardens, that's probably the first step, but, um, what other advice would you offer? Well, my first advice is read Braiding Sweetgrass <laughs> because she okay. she is wonderful. Uh, but I think the first permaculture principle is observe and interact. And I think that a hot drink in a mug every single day at the same time in your garden is one way. Mm. Just go out in your garden with your cup of tea or your cup of coffee or whatever and just sit or just wander around. And what I found over years of doing that is... I never try to remember anything. I never try necessarily to go and observe a particular thing. I just try, what I do try to do is just go out and greet, greet the garden. I like it. You know, it's like, it's like being a teacher. I don't know if you were ever a teacher. I used to be a teacher back in the day. And every day your kitties are there in the classroom and you got to take them as they are because, you know, they come in and they bring all kinds of stuff with them and who they are and what's been going on and all of that. And I think garden is, is similar, is it? Or like an orchestra, you know. I like that. So that's what, that's what I would recommend. And the other thing I would recommend is to walk places, not take the car. And that when you walk, notice everywhere where nature is trying to um, heal humans' development. <laughs> And I'm I'm talking about the dandelions in the cracks in the sidewalk. And Here we have seeds, so many seeds just flying through the air, it seems like. These native wild. plants, they really, 
they are the wild, sorry, wild plants are popping up everywhere here. And in spite of lack of water sometimes, and then in Seattle, it's just so green. It feels like if people don't constantly mold things, then nature would just take right over. It feels like that. Yeah. That's like Britain. Britain is like that too. You blink, you blink. In fact, I've got, I've got a front uh, driveway that's made out of uh, uh, block paving. It's not like, it's not like tarmac or asphalt. Uh And so in all around all the cracks, there's moss growing and the moss of course is a perfect uh, soil medium for, uh, for other seeds, you know? So I've decided today I'm going to do something that I saw on YouTube. These amazing people in, in South Asia who grow like vegetables in their courtyard in the cracks. Oh, I did see that. Yeah. And just that these amazing and these amazing young women in their high heels who are harvesting cabbages and stuff. It's just like mind blowing. So I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do with the cracks. I am going to, I'm going to sow clover and, I, and, and there's a special kind. I was observing what grows naturally there and I found a kind and then I'm just going to mow it. And so, so my, my hard driveway is now going to become a green thing. Needless to say, I don't have a car. <laughs> well, not Good needless for to you. say. I'm lucky because I live in a town that's small enough I can walk places. And we do have a train, a train system in this country, you know, and it's, it's possible. I, and I cycle, you know. It that's would awesome. Be a lot so how, lo- how far would you be from like the center of town? I'm I'm a ten minute walk from the center of town. Oh, okay, so that's really easy. That's awesome. I'm it about is. a thirty minute bike ride, but we have bike paths, you know, so oh, it's wow. a little bit uphill, and yeah. there's a lot of UV happening here, so I have to wear sunscreen. But it's mm-hmm. a great bike path. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I live up on a hill too. I mean, you know, when it, there again, it's it's like you change your word. You're not. You're. It's not hard. What it is is strenuous. Do you follow? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, as you can see, um, I was not born yesterday. I'm a baby boomer. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> um, and I believe that this is keeping me young and fit, you know, and that it's a bit, I hate going to the gym. So, so, and if I have to walk up the hill with a rucksack full of groceries, well, then that's healthy, you know? I agree. And all those things do help us be more connected in general. The more time you spend outside, the more you notice, even if it's not consciously. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the things I've noticed. I wonder whether it's the same for you too, Aaron, which is that I may walk past, past certain plants like every day for two weeks before I notice it. And then suddenly it, it speaks to me. And, oh my God, you mean I've been walking by this this whole time and I haven't noticed this? I sometimes think that my old, I, I grew up in an area next to the forest, basically, but even in spite of that, I didn't understand or pay too much attention until I was older. And then once I started really focusing, now I can just compare my life to what it was before I started paying attention at all. And now I think I notice almost all the plants uh, and where they're popping up. But it's a it's really easy for people to not be open to them. Yeah, Our world doesn't want us to be really... Well, that's it. I mean, a lot of this comes down to making choices and being willing as a human to take responsibility for one's actions, you know, and not just be reactive, uh, having what they call personal agency, you know. And so none of us, I, I read somewhere about a Zen monk who said, well, until he was 90, 
he was only just beginning to learn. And now that he was 95, um, he, he was beginning to understand uh, that he was now in first grade kind of thing. I can't remember <laughs> the exact quote, but basically I, I have that feeling too. The more I know, wow. the more I realize there is to know and how, how one has to become more and more uh, humble in the face of, of Mother Nature, really. No kidding. Well, I'm seeking on a daily basis a new lens. I, I It sounds kind of like a cliche, but I, I say that I would like to see my world in a fresh way, and that includes the plants and my environment mm -hmm. and even the things that aren't related to Mother Nature, just to try to look at things differently because we're all programmed by our society and our society has shifted a lot, um, but we're not caught up as far as our gardens go yet. So mm. I think it's like a really interesting time. And probably by the time that the my generation is your age, uh, in place of the baby boomers, there will be some very different gardening habits, I hope. I hope so. But Mind yeah, you, so... Some, some of us were the original hippies. So we, That's awesome. you know, we've been trying to, um, oh, what, how can we say this, go with the vibe for the last 15 <laughs> years, um, but that wasn't the universally the case, you know. Well, uh, there's no, so many I other think, powers, you know, that were involved, and but the economies are changing, so I think it's going to be possible now. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting. Do you know this idea of um, eight forms of capital? Have you heard about that? No. Well, Google it, Google eight forms of okay. capital. Um, Basically, the idea is that money isn't the only kind of capital. We can have physical capital in our physical health, for example, social capital, because we've got friends and relations and we're in good standing. Uh, we may have intellectual capital because we know stuff and we've invented stuff and, and so on. And there's natural capital. You, it, I could be criticized for even calling nature capital because that's a saying. bit of a dangerous view. And the reason I mention that is because the more I observe nature and live with nature, and uh, and also the more I read people, writers like um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, talking about uh, indigenous wisdom about nature, the more um, I come to understand that there is no wealth but life. And the more we understand that we are cradled in that, the more it will touch us. Whereas the more we believe that we control it, or that we have a right to control it, the more our mind will shut. It's, it's, a, it's like a two-way street. So it becomes, by even entertaining ideas like being cradled within nature, that opens us up as a student and as a, as a, as a, spiritual, as a spiritual way of walking in the world, isn't it? Yes. And, and so that's, that's what I would encourage people to do we really can learn from the dandelions you know do you have dandelions? that's a beautiful way of oh absolutely yes we do yeah yeah it's um, such a more beautiful way of leading our lives i think i think so too and you know another thing um, i mean it's it's overwhelming how can we learn all these plants and animals well we can't it is not right. possible even if you go out i mean i i have some uh, wonderful contacts on linkedin um, who are ecologists, but they specialize as well. There is no such thing as a generalist ecologist. They, they have to specialize because it's so vast. And what I would advise people is don't force yourself to learn everything. Don't even think that you will ever learn everything. Simply f start with a single plant where you are that you find beautiful or that you have learned you can eat or you have learned you can 
you know, make tea from. Just start with a single plant and then build from there. And, and that plant will open the door for you to, to be attracted to other plants. Um, That's awesome. And for me, it was the, the dandelion. The dandelion was one of the ones for me. It's one of my, one of my favorite plants. Well, it's so healthy. It's so beautiful. It's good for everybody. <laughs> That's right. And it's, That's omnip right. it's omnipresent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of my ecologist friends on LinkedIn, his, his name is Joshua Stiles. I, I suggest you reach out to him too. He's okay. absolutely amazing. Joshua Stiles. And he gave, um, he gave a webinar on, wait for it, the 250 um, subspecies of dandelion. Amazing. And he had, I don't know how many people were on that webinar. I mean, you know, they, they, it was like, you know, an amphitheater full of people. That he is so is cool. He is just so amazing. So my name is Jennifer Lourol, L-A-U-R-U-O-L. And I am a permaculture designer, edible ornamental. And my website is Carpe Diem Gardens co.uk and i'm also on linkedin jennifer l'oreal so i hope to hear from you and connect awesome well any parting words that you'd like to share with people just go out there love the plants love them and they will they will come to you thanks for listening the next episode will be about simple composting and getting started with composting you can still sign up for the email list at getinmygarden.com to stay in touch follow what's up and suggest interview subjects also find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at Get In My Garden. Until next time.